you have your Bibles, you should already be open to the book of Acts, chapter 9. And again, as I said before, we have a wonderful opportunity to look at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, also known as Apostle Paul, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. And um, I'm very excited about being able to share this passage with you. And I, and I just hope you guys understand that uh, this is my most favorite thing to do in the world, is to open up God's Word and teach God's people. And so um, I'm, I'm so privileged to be able to do this and share the Word with you this morning. So as Dean just read, Acts chapter 9, we're going to try to cover these first 19 verses. And, and as I begin to think about this passage, I begin to think about Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. Um, most of you know If you've been in church any amount of time, you know how much influence this one man has had historically through the church. And you really began to think about how God used this unique individual to do so many amazing things throughout his lifetime. And let me just share a few of those things with you. It has been said that apart from the the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, which obviously is critical, it is the gospel message, Uh, We have that as the fundamental, foundational, essential um, act of God in human history. We know that. Then you see the the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, which was probably maybe the second most significant event that happened in the church historically. And they say the conversion of Saul of Tarsus could very well be maybe the third most significant. important event that happened in the course of church history just because of the influence that God had was able to to wield through the life of Saul and through the life of Paul, the Apostle Paul. By the way, I am of the belief that uh, God did not change Saul's name to Paul, okay? Uh, Most Jews of that day would have a Hebrew name and they would have a, a Greek name or a Roman name and if you read the book of Acts carefully, you see that he's first referred to as Saul of Tarsus because of there he's interacting mostly with the, the Jews in Jerusalem. He's trying to, to uh, arrest the, the early church, most of them being Jews. But as he begins to be a, a, an apostle to the Gentiles, Luke uh, specifically refers to his name as Paul because to the Gentile world, he would have been referred to by his Gentile name, which is Paul. We don't find anywhere in the scripture where it said God changed his name from Saul to Paul, not like Abram's name was changed to Abraham and so on. So it is, some people get a little confused about that, but I'll refer to him either as Saul or Paul, same guy, no, no big deal. But I do want to look at some of the things that Paul was able to do in, in, throughout his lifetime. If you hold a copy of God's word and you look at the New Testament alone, Paul is contributed or attributed with, with writing up almost 30% of the New Testament. So more than likely, if you're studying the New Testament at all right now, you're probably coming across some of the writings of the Apostle Paul. So God inspired him through the Holy Spirit of God. As the, as the Word says, he was inspired by the Word to write down these letters, these epistles to the churches, and that we now um, uphold them and, and um, recognize them as authoritative words of God, the Word of God, the Scripture. So Paul uh, wrote much of the New Testament. Uh, he was historically one of the greatest theologians who ever lived. Uh, other than, of course, Jesus himself. He was a great apologist of the faith, giving of the faith, giving a defense of the Christian faith, unlike probably anyone else that's ever lived. He's, he's credited with much of the early development of Christian thought and doctrine. So when you begin to, you know, you have the gospel accounts, you have the book of Acts, but when you start getting into Paul's writings, he really starts to develop some of these Christian thoughts and this doctrine that we now uphold, some of the things that we believe and affirm today as essential doctrines of the church. Well, they came from Paul's writings. Also, he's considered 
as being probably the greatest missionary who ever lived, right? Because of the church planning effort that God just sent him on these missionary journeys and how God used him to plant churches all throughout Asia Minor and the Gentile world, um, even to the fact that where the church began to spread so much that it began to affect and penetrate the Roman Empire itself. And, of course, you know the, the rest of, of history uh, there in Rome. And so you have all of these things that Paul was involved in and very unique individual. And you tie all that together with the fact that before he came to Christ, we know, is that before he encountered, had this encounter that, that Brother Dean just read for us, he was the great persecutor of the church. He was public enemy number one of the church. And so how just unique of an individual this man was, being public enemy number one, the great persecutor, he took up the mantle of persecuting the way, the people of God, the church, the followers of Jesus Christ, and yet now we see him as being used of God in such a mighty way. He has a dramatic testimony, he has a dramatic conversion experience, and God used him mightily throughout his lifetime. So the reason I'm telling you all of that is most of us here, if not all of us, will probably never be used to the extent of the Apostle Paul. It's just a reality, right? Because I don't know if there's anybody that's ever been used since in church history to the extent of the Apostle Paul. And there's probably nobody that's had more of a dramatic conversion as being the enemy of God, the enemy of the church, and then coming around and being saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming the number one proponent and advocate of the church. So just the, the dramatic conversion of Paul in and of itself is unique. I recognize that. This morning. So instead of us looking at the distinctions of Paul's conversion and how God used him in all of these different amazing ways, I want to look at the similarities. Because if you read a passage like this today, you may say, Well, I didn't have a blinding experience when I met the Lord Jesus Christ, and I didn't go blind, and, and I didn't have to go pray for three days and, and three nights fasting, and, and you know, nobody came and laid their hands over me. And you know, that's not my testimony. Well, I understand that, but there are elements, there are factors in this testimony that I believe can and do apply to all of us in our testimony. And so I think it would be beneficial for you and me today to see what are the similarities that we draw from the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and then how it applies to your life and my life today. So the title of the message is God's Chosen Instrument for God's Greater Work. We are chosen instruments for God's greater work. No matter who we are, where we started out, how we came to faith in Jesus Christ, this one truth applies to all of us today. And so let's go ahead and begin. I've got several points that I want to make with you that I think will apply to all of you today and hopefully will encourage you today. The first one is simply this, and this is a universal truth. Jesus Christ meets us exactly where we are. Yeah, praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. I find this story almost humorous. Can you think about this story from, from God's perspective? Here is Saul. He is the public enemy number one. The church is terrified of this man. They know everywhere he goes, he just ravishes. He stomps out the church. He destroys the church. He brings people to jail. He's approving of their murder. All of these things. The church, I mean, they are completely terrified of this man, and it's like God is sitting in the heavens, and he just laughs. And he's like, you know what? This one man may be the greatest threat to the early church, how did God see him? He says, man, he's going to be my greatest asset. 
Isn't that amazing how God works like that? Only God can do something like that. From our human perspective, no way we would ever see Saul of Tarsus become the greatest asset of the early church. And yet, and from God's perspective, he's just laughing. He said, let him do what he thinks he's going to do because I've got better plans for Saul. He met Saul exactly where he was. Saul was completely full of rage. He was completely full of anger, full of murder, full of malice, all the things that you're going to hear in his testimony. And God came to him and met him exactly where he was. And he will meet us exactly where we are. God meets us in our sin, in our rebellion, in our hostility toward him. That's exactly where he meets us. So what do you get from that? Well, if God can save Saul of Tarsus, he can save anybody. See, some of you may be sitting in here today, maybe you've been in church a long time, and maybe you've never really come to the point and place in your life where you believe God can truly love you and forgive you for who you are and what you've done. I may be speaking to somebody in this room today that just has wrestled with that their whole life, saying, if you just knew my past, if you just knew the things that I've done, you would know that there's no way God can forgive me of that. That's a lie. There is no sin too great for God's mercy. There's no sin too great for God's grace. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he went to the cross to save us from all sin. No matter who we are, what we've done, I want you to hear and believe today that if God can save someone like Saul of Tarsus, he certainly can save you today. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He did not come into the world to save good people. He came into the world to save sinners. He came came to seek and save those who are lost, who are spiritually sick. I think about this one statement. If Jesus Christ had to wait, if his mission was, you wait, Lord Jesus, to come to save humanity until they get their act together, how long would Jesus be waiting? He wouldn't have come, would he? See, if God is waiting for us to clean up our act and get some things right and get our priorities straight and, you know, we're going we're gonna to do better with our life and we got to get to a better, you know, it's funny, I had a college roommate and, and at that time, you know, I was witnessing to him and, and sharing my faith with him and I'll never forget what he says. You know, I, he said, I just need to get some things right in my life first before I come to Jesus. That's the exact opposite of the gospel. See, the gospel never teaches moral improvement The gospel will never say, do better, try harder, you know, grit your teeth, grin and bear it, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of gospel is you are completely and utterly empty and bankrupt, morally and spiritually. You have nothing that you can do to earn your way to God, to earn your way to heaven, to make yourself right with God. There's nothing in and of ourselves that we will ever be able to do to get right with God. So we have to find ourselves at that place where we are completely and utterly bankrupt, empty of ourselves. One missionary said, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. But take heart because you're more loved than you could ever know. That's the message of the gospel. You see, Paul knew what it meant to be an enemy of God. 
I mean, again, this is a, a, a mark he did, I think, wrestle with. He had to fight. He had to bear this the rest of his life because he had done so much damage. He had done so much evil and harm to God's people. So, yes, I think he probably battled with some of that even throughout the rest of his life as he served the Lord Jesus Christ because he knew he was obsessed. It said he was breathing threats, murderous threats against the church. If you think about the language in that text, when he's talking about he's breathing murderous threats, it's like he was completely mad. He was crazed. He was obsessed. He could think about nothing else than destroying the church. It's like he's hyperventilating and he can't even catch his breath until he he accomplishes his purpose to stomp out the church. That was his calling. That was exactly what he felt like he was on this earth to do, to destroy and stomp out this heresy, this, this way of Jesus Christ, these disciples of Jesus Christ. So Paul understood what it meant to be an enemy of the cross, an enemy of God. So it's easy for us to kind of compare ourselves to Saul and say, well, you know, I was never to that point in my life. But do you know what the Bible teaches? Is that if we have to really begin to acknowledge who we are in our own sinful disposition before a holy God, we must too acknowledge this one fact that by nature, By nature, we're born as what? Enemies of God. Children of wrath, the Bible says. Now, if you don't believe me, I want to share two verses with you just to kind of clarify. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, he said this, for if while we were enemies... If while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, Paul, this is Paul writing in Romans 5, and he's saying, Jesus came while we were still sinners, and we were enemies of God. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, he takes it a little bit further. He says, and you, talking to the church in Ephesus, all the believers in the church, he had to remind them, you were dead in your sins and trespasses, just like you and I were which you once to walk according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, the spirit that is now working, the sons of the disobedience. And listen to what he says, among whom we all once lived. Now he's speaking of himself as well because Paul knew what it meant to be an enemy of God, right? But I need you to know what it means to be an enemy of God, that we all are enemies of God by nature. Listen to what he says. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That means that in our sinful nature, in our sinful state, we are enemies of God and we are under his judgment. We are under his wrath. So Jesus didn't wait for Saul to get his act together. He met him exactly where he was. A little bit of a side note before I move on. This is very interesting. See, Saul was targeting the church, right? Number one target of Saul was the church. Little did he know that the church's number one target was who? It was Saul. How do we know that? Well, let's, let's, take for, let's, let's step back for just a second and just assume that the early church was actually doing what Jesus Christ called them to do. That's a novel idea, right? But let's just assume that the early church was actually doing what Jesus Christ called them to do. Well, what did Jesus Christ teach about our enemies? Pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Do good to those who harm you. So do you think when the early church met and they pulled out their prayer list, who was at the top? Saul of Tarsus. Who's our greatest enemy? 
Saul of Tarsus. Who should we be praying for the most? Saul of Tarsus. You see, I believe with all my heart that the early church was targeting Saul of Tarsus with their prayers, intent, fervent, faithful prayers, because they knew if God would just get a hold. You see, they could have been praying for his death. They could have been praying that God would just destroy him. Lord, why, why are you letting this enemy attack us? Just destroy him. No, I believe they were praying for his salvation, and Saul of Tarsus didn't know that, and this is one of the means that I, I think through which God worked in order to save Saul of Tarsus. There's a man named Henry Groover. I'll share this real quick. He's a, an evangelist. He travels around, and he was in South Korea recently, and he kept having this vision of the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un. Many of you have seen him. They, uh, what does Donald Trump call him? Rocket Man? Something like that. So uh, he kept seeing this vision of Kim Jong-un, of, of him being assassinated. And he was going to South Korea the next week. He went to South Korea. He was having a chance to meet with the church. There's a strong remnant of believers in South Korea. And he was meeting with some of the pastors there. And he just felt this strong conviction in his heart and his life to share with the pastors this one truth. He's saying, I believe that God is telling me to tell you this, that you guys are praying for the death of Kim Jong-un. I need you to pray for his salvation. And the pastors, he said, they responded with utter conviction. They were brought to their knees, broken over their sin, knowing they said, you know what? You are exactly right. We hate this man. We've been hoping that God would just take him out. How much better would it be if Kim Jong-un, rocket man, got saved, completely changed by the grace of God? He opened up North Korea to become a free country. The people in North Korea would not be oppressed anymore. Just think about the ramifications if that man could simply, if God would just get a hold of that man, that whole country would potentially be changed for the good. But if he gets taken out and he gets killed, guess what's going to happen? Somebody else is going to step right in his place and carry out the, only, the same evil desires, right? Now, let's think about our prayer list real quick. Who's at the top of your list? Is it that person that just gets your blood boiling when you think about them? Is it that one family member that you don't want to see anymore? Is it that boss that keeps just yelling at you and treating you like you're not worth anything and you just dread going to work? Is he at the top? I was convicted. Are our enemies at the top of our prayer list? I think by, I think by this message today, maybe we should change some of that, don't you? Let's start praying for our enemies. Let's start carrying out the, the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because we know that just like Jesus is willing to meet us where we are, he is willing to meet our, our enemies exactly where they are. Number two, Jesus reveals to us exactly who he is. You see, when Jesus comes to Saul, he basically engulfs him with this glory. He, this is the risen, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in his glorified state. He comes to Saul. We don't really know exactly all the details. That This testimony is recorded at least three times in the book of Acts. I'll refer to some of those here in just a minute. But all we know is that it was so bright, Paul tells King Agrippa in uh, later, I think it's in Acts chapter 26, he says that the light that engulfed him was brighter than the sun itself. How many of you ever tried to stare into the sun? <laughs> Nobody wants to admit that, right? <laughs> Um, you know, like the eclipse that we had last year, and was it this year or this past year? You had to wear the glasses. You know, don't, don't look at the sun without your glasses. It'll, it'll completely just burn your eyes. We know that, right? Paul said this light was brighter than the sun. I find it fascinating. You know that God didn't create the sun until the fourth day of creation? But he created light on what? Day one. Because God, the light, Jesus Christ is the light 
of the world. Do you know that you read in Revelation chapter 22 that there will be no more sun in the new heaven and the new earth because the Lamb Himself will be our light? God doesn't need the sun to blind us because He is pure light. And so you see how Jesus revealed Himself in all of His glory to the apostle Paul. And then he says, as Paul responds, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, let me share this. This is very, very important. You see, we know that Jesus came to take on flesh, to identify with us in our sufferings. He wanted to live in human flesh, in human form, to experience what it's like to be a human. Jesus wept. He got hungry. He, he suffered betrayal. He was nailed to a cross. He suffered death. He knows what it's, what it's like to be human. Some of you are out there saying, but you know what? Jesus never really experienced what it was like to lose a child. And I've lost a child, and it's just tearing me up. But you know what? If you're here today and you're in Christ Jesus, based on what we read right here, you see, when Saul was breathing threats and persecuting the church, and all, grabbing men and women by their hair, dragging them out of their homes, throwing them into prison, approving of their murder, beating them, torturing them. Guess what? Who felt that, all that pain and all that abuse, who felt that along with the church? Jesus Christ said, you're persecuting me. I'm hurting with my people. In a way, I'm, vicar I'm vicariously feeling the persecution and the pain and the abuse that they're feeling as you're bringing this threat against them. What does that mean for you and me? That means that if you and I are here today and Jesus Christ is living in you and in me and you lost a child and you hurt and you've suffered through that, guess who suffered through that with you? So Jesus know, does know what it's like Amen. to go through anything that we've been through to experience suffering and pain on the level that any level that we've experienced. You see, if you're here in Christ, Christ has identified with you and he is there with you, uh, suffering alongside with you, comforting you, being there with you through every step of the way. That's the kind of a God we have. Amen. A God who is real, a God who is true, a God who is present, a God who identifies with us and cares about us deeply on every level. What comfort we should draw from knowing that. And it's just fascinating to me because just thinking about the conversion of Paul altogether, if he wasn't talking to Jesus that day, who was he talking to? He was either a madman out of his mind who spent the rest of his life proclaiming the gospel of this risen Jesus Christ, which makes no sense whatsoever, or he really did indeed meet the risen Lord Jesus, on the road to Damascus, which means this. If Jesus was still dead, then how was Paul talking to him? One of the great testimonies of the early church is the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. Amen. He is alive. He is still alive today. That's why we can know him. That's why we can have a relationship with him. That's exactly what happened to Saul of Tarsus. Jesus revealed him in his, all of his glory exactly who he was to Saul of Tarsus. You see, it has to be that we come to the point of being put in the light and the holiness and the glory of God for us to be able to experience on some level, not, maybe not to this level, because again, this is a unique in instance, encounter. 
But as we preach the gospel and we talk about the holiness of God and we talk about the the purity of God, the sinlessness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God, when we preach the righteousness of God, that should expose us for our unrighteousness, right? See, it's easy for us to compare ourselves by ourselves. We fall into a trap when we do that. We can always find somebody else in this world that's worse off than we are, right? We should never compare ourselves by ourselves, We compare ourselves to who? To the Lord Jesus Christ, the the, the holy and righteous one. And when we do that in light of who he is, it exposes us for really who we are. And that's what it takes for us to be reborn, to be saved, is that we have to really begin to understand who we really are in light of his glory and his grace. Number three. Jesus creates in us a new heart. Well, where where do you see that in this passage? Well, you know what? I don't see it explicitly stated here in this passage. But all I know is that Saul of Tarsus was headed up the road to Damascus to go destroy the church. And by the time he left there, he's preaching the gospel. That man got a new what? He got a new heart. It happened somewhere along the way. And for any of us to understand what it means to be saved, to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ, listen, we don't need to turn over a new leaf. We need a heart transplant. That's what we need. Spiritually speaking, it's almost like Jesus reached in, grabbed a hold of his old, corrupt, evil, and wicked heart, and he took it out and he replaced it with a heart of flesh, as the Scripture says, or a living heart, a heart after his own heart. It's like a man who was in need of a heart transplant and he went to the doctor and they kept doing everything that they could do. And finally it came to the point where the doctor said, look, we've tried to give you medication for months. You're getting regular checkups and doctor visits. Matter of fact, you've been admitted to the hospital now for the last three months. And sir, I hate to tell you this, but there's nothing else that's going to save your life at this point except you have to get a new what? Got to get a new heart. And the man was terrified. He said, well, why can't you just give me more medicine? Well, the medicine's not working. Well, maybe I can just stay in the hospital a little bit longer and get the treatment that I need. We can't do any more treatment. The only way you're going to live, sir, is if you get a new heart. And unfortunately, I think that that's what's happened to some extent to our church. We think, you know, if I can just come and sit in the congregation and get a little more medicine, let, let the preacher give me a little more good news, then I'll be okay. No, maybe I just need to become a member of the church and as long as I'm at the church and I'm involved at the church and I have this religious duty that I'm carrying out in my life, maybe if I'm just in the church, then I'm going to be right with God. It doesn't matter how much time you spend in the church. It doesn't matter how many times a pastor preaches you or you even read the scriptures. Until you get a heart transplant, supernaturally speaking, you get a new heart, a spiritual heart, you are lost. There's nothing inside of you that's going to change. Some of us need to to, to sit back this morning and examine ourselves and say, listen, have I ever really received a new heart? When did my heart change? When did I start having just this overwhelming desire to know God? Do you wake up in the morning just saying, Lord, I want to know you more. I want to read your word because you're in your word and you're teaching me through your word. I do want to be with God's people Because I have a new heart. I do want to serve you and be faithful to you and be your witness. Why? Because you've changed me. You've given me a new heart. 
It's what it says in Ezekiel 36. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove your heart of stone and, and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the gospel. We must receive a new heart. One of the reasons I know that Saul was saved on the road that day is because a little bit later when you read about Ananias coming to lay his hands on him. Did y'all catch that? Did y'all, see, did y'all hear what Ananias called Saul? He said, brother. So Ananias knew, okay, he was an enemy, but now he's my what? He's my brother in Christ. He was a new man. We need to be radically changed. And when you have a new heart, you begin to love the things that God loves you begin to hate the things that God hates. Does your heart yearn for fellowship with God? Do you hunger and thirst after his word? All of these things, I need to ask you that question because is that your testimony today or is there just something completely missing? Is your spiritual life dry and dull and dead and fruitless? Maybe some of you need to acknowledge that you just never got a new heart and Jesus is here today to give you one a spiritual heart transplant. Number four, Jesus tells us us exactly where to go, and I'm going to go ahead and throw this next one in there, and he commands us exactly what to do. And we shouldn't, this shouldn't take us by surprise, right? But as as soon as Saul is saved, he says, all right, I need you to go, go to Damascus. Interesting, his companions had to lead him there. We don't hear anything else about his companions after that. I think they dropped him off and said, man, we're out of here. I don't know what happened to this guy, but something's wrong. He's blind. He's, he's talking gibberish. We know something happened to him on the road. We're going to get him set up. We don't hear about his companions anymore. They're gone. But all we know is that Jesus told Saul exactly where to go, and he told Ananias exactly where to go. So, Because he's, he's putting all this together just like the Lord is always doing. He's, he's working on both ends. We saw that with the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. He was already wor- at work in both of their hearts. So he's bringing all this together. And he's telling them where to go, and it doesn't make sense. Again, I find this fascinating. We, we keep getting this over and over in the Scripture because just like the Philip and the Ethiopian unit, the Lord told Philip, leave the revival, go to the desert. There's nobody there, Lord. Why are you sending me to the desert? Well, he had a purpose, right? Now think about what he just told Ananias. Ananias is in fellowship with the Lord. He comes to Ananias in a vision. He says, Ananias, look, by the way, I just got a hold of this man's life. His name's Saul of Tarsus. You may have heard of him. And uh, look, I need you to go minister to him. And it's interesting, just just look at what Ananias says. Look at verse 13. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And look at the Lord's response. But I said what? Go. Go. It's almost like, you know, like Ananias had to inform the Lord about who he was. But don't miss this. If Saul had letters from the chief priest to go, an authority to go arrest believers in Damascus, undoubtedly Ananias was probably on his list. So Ananias is trying to keep as much distance between him and Saul as he possibly can. And now the Lord's saying, you need to go straight to him. Man, what faith it required. But Ananias was a faithful man who went and did exactly what the Lord told him to do. Now, 
Generally speaking, this applies to all of us, right? I mean, how many times have I stood up here and preached about the Great Commission? This active idea to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Uh, we call it our, our, this go campaign that we've talked about for the last couple of months, you know? And whether or not you've kind of bought into that or not, I'm not really concerned about that because let me tell you one of the primary motivations why we wanted to get you out, just, just get out of here and just get back on your streets and back in your neighborhoods and just thinking about praying, how, how to pray for your neighbors. And, and now we are passing out the gospel We're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether people take advantage of that or not, that's not up to us. We're just called to scatter the seed, to sow the seed, right? But I think if anything, what what this whole Go campaign was about was to kind of nudge you a little bit. Do you think we're stopping now? You think that, 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 okay, I got two months of my life, Lord, to pray and, and, and care about my neighbors now back to life, right? That's not what this is about. This is about the church in North America being so isolated and for us to being so comfortable and us being so complacent. I've been there, trust me. And it's just a way for us as leaders to say, okay, we need to kind of get you up out of your seats, maybe give you a little bit of some encouragement, a little nudge out the door to get you thinking outside the box a little bit more, to thinking outside the church a little bit more, because that's exactly what Jesus Christ has called you to do. From the day that you were born again to the day that, you're, the day that you die, Jesus Christ has called you to go. In your own way, in your own place of influence, in your own rhythms of life, he's called you to go. And that's exactly what this is all about. Hopefully we have pointed you in the right direction, guys, and I hope that it's just the beginning of our church being serious about going. And he also commands us what to do. One of the problems or one of the reasons why I believe that some of us never experience God on the level that I think we all want to experience him. When we read the scriptures, we're like, man, I wish I could encounter God that way. Well, you know what? Part of the problem may be is that we're not obeying, we're not being obedient to the things that we do know about God. And therefore, we're not being exposed to the greater things about God, the greater work of God. Well, where, where do you say that? Well, if you think about it from John 14, 21, listen to what Jesus said. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them or obeys them, he is the one that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. What is Jesus telling us? He's saying that if you'll just obey my commandments, then I will show you more of myself. Sometimes I think that we're not seeing more of God work in our life because we're not being obedient to what we know to be true. What are the little things, the little commandments in your Bible, the little commandments that Jesus Christ has given you that you're failing to be obedient to and yet you're expecting to see God work in a greater way? You know, part of my testimony is I was called to preach later in life and... When, whenever God got a hold of me and I knew I was called to preach, one of the things that I did, and I'm not, I'm not bragging on myself, but I, I want to share this as a testimony of, of steward, the principle of stewardship, right? If you're faithful with little, what will he do? He will give you more. And so when I was called to preach, this is what I began to do. Uh, hey, this is such and such from FCA at Podunk High School. Will you come share with my students? I'll be there. Hey, uh, this is the director of the nursing home, and uh, we just don't have anybody up here preaching to uh, having a church service with our residents. Would you be willing to come share a message with the nursing home? I'll be there. 
hey, this is a little country church way out here that nobody's ever heard of, and we don't have a pastor, and we just need somebody to come and preach to our 12 people who are still here at the church. Will you come preach? I'll be there. And I was glad to do it. Will you share your testimony? I'll share it. So God showed me that if you'll just be faithful to to do what I've called you to do in these little things, what we consider little things, guess what happened as I began to be faithful in that? He began to show me much more. He began to open up more opportunities for me to where finally I was able to go to a full-time position in church and plant a church, and now I'm here, and God just continues to be faithful in bringing me into greater and deeper relationship with himself because I'm trying my best to be obedient and faithful to what he's given me. Now, what are you doing? If you're not experiencing God on a deeper level, if it's been 10 years, 15 years, 5 years, 20 years since you've seen some, some serious growth in your life, then you may need to examine your heart, reevaluate your life, and say, Lord, where are the areas of my life that I'm not being obedient Because he's not going to trust you with more until you're faithful and obedient with what you have. Go where he tells you to go. Do what he tells you to do. Real quick, Jesus reminds us exactly why we are here. This is probably the key verse in the whole passage. Verse 15. The Lord said to Ananias, go. For he, speaking of Saul... He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He says, Saul is a chosen instrument, and I want to tell you this morning, so are you. So are you. If God has gotten a hold of your life, if you're a Christian, you are an instrument in his hand. That word instrument can be translated a vessel and implement a tool, and tools are made for a purpose. Tools are made for a purpose. So when we, came to, when we come to faith in Jesus, we're set apart, we now belong to God, and we're set apart for a greater purpose, which the Lord reminds Saul is to proclaim his name. It always goes back to the gospel, the Great Commission, for this godly purpose, this eternal purpose. Now, you may not be the sharpest tool in the shed, That's okay, because sometimes God needs to break down a wall, and maybe you're just a blunt hammer, and that's okay because you're his tool in his hand, right? Because it is important that the tools that we are are used for the purpose for which they are needed, and that's the beautiful picture of the body of Christ, right? All the different members. It's talking about the members, and every member is needed, and every member is important. That's the same thing that, that he's talking about here. You are a chosen instrument of the Lord to be used in his hands for his per- perfect purposes. So if you have a knife and you have a wonderful steak, that knife comes in handy. But this time of year, I love soup. If you have a knife and you're trying to eat soup, it doesn't work too well, does it? I'm going to have to call out one of our elders, Mr. Jim Mitchell. It's kind of funny. Last week we, ate, we had a chance to eat at O'Charlie's, and O'Charlie's has some great potato soup. And everybody got their meal, Mr. Jim's there, and all he has is a fork. <laughs> and he asked the waitress, ma'am, can I please get a spoon? And we're all, you know, we're digging in. The food's hot, it's fresh, it smells good. And I look over there, Mr. Jim, he's, he's trying to eat the soup with the fork. <laughs> it's just dropping right back into the bowl. He said, I was able to scrape the bacon bits off the top. At least I got that much, right? So a fork doesn't do you much good when you're trying to eat soup, right? We understand that. But every one of us here today, we are a chosen instrument in the hands of God to be used for this greater 
purpose. What happens to a tool or an instrument or a machine when it malfunctions or it's no longer any good? What do we do? We chunk it, right? I mean, especially today, like computers and technology, I mean, that's worth nothing. Now, you just, some phone breaks, computer breaks, we usually just chunk it. It's not worth repairing, and we just go get a new one. But there's, some, there's a principle to that. The principle is if you're a tool in the hands of God, but you're not fulfilling the purpose for which you were created, you have essentially become useless in his hands. And maybe it is that the Lord's saying, well, you know what? You're not doing what I called and created you to do. You're not fulfilling the purpose for which I created you to be, this chosen instrument in my hand. So I am just going to lay you down for a while because you're not being useful for the kingdom and I'm going to pick up someone else. There's a principle in that. There's no greater purpose than to proclaim the name of Jesus to the world. It's like a treadmill. How many of you have a treadmill? This second uh, best purpose is to be a good clothes hanger in your, in your room, right? It just doesn't work that way, does it? Listen to, what, listen to what the Lord told Paul. This is from Acts 26. A little bit later... He says, rise, stand to your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant, to witness to the things in which you've seen in me, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people and from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Listen to what he tells Saul. He says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Wow, think about that. Now you say, but that's the Apostle Paul. No, that's you. God called you to do what? To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, so that they may turn from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sin and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. It's to be a tool that goes out into the world, an instrument in God's hands, so that people's eyes can be opened and they can be saved and delivered from Satan and delivered from their sins, knowing that their sins have been forgiven by the death of Jesus Christ. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the reality. Yes, Saul of Tarsus was commissioned by God to go be an apostle to the Gentiles. He had a specific people group that God called him to. But do you know what? So do you. There are people in your life that I can never reach. I don't work where you work. I don't live next to the neighbors that you live to. Children, I don't go to your school. And you don't work where I work every day, and you don't live where I live every day. It's the same principle. See, there are people in your life right now that God is calling you to reach. That's your people group. And you're there for a reason, for a purpose right now, because God is saying, I'm calling you as my chosen instrument to go and reach these people. i got to move. Lastly, if you had any excuses up until this point, Jesus will always give you what you need. Jesus gives us exactly what we need. I love, you know what I love about this passage? And I'm going to kind of wrap it up here. We know that we need the Holy Spirit. We know we can't, we can't live this life apart from the Holy Spirit. We know we need the Word of God. We can't proclaim the works of Jesus. We can't proclaim the gospel without knowing the Word of God. But you know what's so special about this one encounter? Saul of Tarsus is in a stranger's house, and he is all alone, and he is blind. He can't see. He has not eaten for three days and three nights. And you know what the Lord sent him? A friend. 
The Lord sent him a friend. The Lord sent him a brother in Christ. Guys, we need each other. We can't do this alone. We cannot do this all by ourselves. That's why this right now, who you are right here in this church, in a body of believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, we need each other. And God will give you everything that you need. And he has given you a wonderful church family. And we need to take advantage of that. We need to be vulnerable sometimes and say, you know what? I'm not fine. Isn't that right? How you doing today, brother? What's our answer? I'm fine. No, you're not. Sometimes I'm not fine, guys. Sometimes I walk in here and I'm, I'm not fine. Sometimes we as brothers and sisters in Christ, we just need to be transparent and vulnerable with each other and say, you know what, I'm blind, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm confused, I'm angry, whatever it may be. Will you please encourage me? Will you pray for me? Will you just sit with me? Will you just be my friend? God will give us everything that we need to carry out the purpose for which we live. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on back up. We're going to close out with one of our great hymns, Amazing Grace. And I'm going to ask you this question. What's it going to take for you to be willing to lay down your life in the hands of the Almighty and become His chosen instrument for His greater work? What's keeping you? You know what? Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians. He said, you are not your own. You were bought with a great price. This wasn't any cheap redemption. It cost Jesus his life to redeem you from sin and Satan and darkness and hell. And Paul says, you don't belong to yourself anymore, Christian. We don't get to call the shots anymore. And that's probably the tension that all of us are continuing to face and will face the rest of our lives because of that sinful nature that still wants to rear its head, but we know who we are now in Christ Jesus, that we're, we have an uh, instrument in God's hand as a, for a chosen purpose, but we have to all come to the point and place in our life where we're saying, you know what, Lord, I'm not calling the shots anymore. I don't even belong to myself anymore. I belong to you. Now, as we sing this last song, I just want to ask you that question. Is it wherever you are right now, if you want to be obedient and part of this greater work that God has for all of us, then please don't leave here until you get that right in your heart. Please don't walk out this door thinking that you want to go to O Charlie's and get some of that good potato soup. <laughs> this is the time to do business, to get right with God, to know that there is a world out there hurting they're lost, they're in darkness, and they need a friend. Amen. They need a brother. Will you go? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, And I just thank you so much for your word today. I thank you for meeting us where we are. Thank you for giving us a new heart. There may be some in this room today, Lord, who've never experienced a new heart, Lord, new life in Christ. Lord, I thank you that you've given us commandments to do what you've told us to do, where to go, Lord, and that you will always give us what we need. You'll never send us out into that world alone. You'll never send us out into that world without the, the weapons and the tools that we need to do what you've called us to do. And so, God, for us today, I pray that you would just reach down 
Get a hold of our hearts, Lord. Let this Sunday not be a normal Sunday. I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that today would be different. That, that if you're at work in, in someone's heart, in many hearts this morning, Lord, that they wouldn't suppress that, they wouldn't just ignore it anymore, Lord, but they would, they would stop where they are, that they would cry out to you, Lord, and allow you to begin to work this great work in our hearts, Lord knowing that we're here as a church family, that we love each other, we're here for each other, and we're here to encourage each other and pray for one another, Lord. So if they need a friend, if they need a counselor, a counselor, Lord, to help them to have the courage to reach out. This is our time to respond, Lord, and we respond with thankfulness, giving you all the glory for who you are and what you've done, for it's in Jesus' holy and wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me as we sing?